kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Acts 17, 1 through 7, we'll begin reading in chapter 16, verse 40, for context. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went in to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. Our last study closed with Paul and Silas converting the jailer who had thrown them into prison and converting his household as well, then being released from prison and working to repair the reputation of the Christian movement in the community of Philippi. In Acts 16.40, They entered the house of Lydia, and on our inference that it was the Lord's Day, we supposed that their visit with and encouragement of the brethren included congregational worship before they departed. Here, Luke continues a they narrative rather than returning to a we narrative, implying that he, and evidently Timothy as well, remained behind to work with the new congregation in Philippi. Acts 17.1 then continues, Now when they, that is Paul and Silas, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul and Silas continued their journey down the Ignatian Way, traveling a total of about 100 miles. The journey was broken up into three days. The first, 33 miles to Amphipolis, the second, 30 miles to Apollonia, and the third, another 37 miles to Thessalonica. Amphipolis and Apollonia were impressive cities, and likely the reason Luke rushes by them with no significant comment was because there was no work done there. Most likely this was because there was no significant Jewish population in those cities, so Paul and Silas merely spent an evening in them and moved on ahead. It has been noted that they have not had sufficient time to heal from their beating in Philippi when they embark on this trip. We should not assume that the Holy Spirit healed them supernaturally. There's no indication in the Bible that God performed miracles 
just to make his people immune from all pain. Divine deliverances were rare and deeply special occurrences. So these men, sore and suffering, rushed forward in their pursuit of good ground in which to sow the seed of the kingdom. Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia. For reference, Greece, which of course is an archipelago on the southeastern coast of the European continent, was at this time divided into three geographical regions, Macedonia in the north, Achaia in the south, and the Peloponnese in the southwest. Thessalonica is a seaport, even to this day one of the most important in the Mediterranean, located at the northern edge of the Thermaic Gulf. It was the largest city in Macedonia, and in its massive and multicultural populace, Paul and Silas found what they had been searching for, a robust Jewish community with a thriving synagogue. No doubt Paul expected that this would allow for an easier work than the thoroughly paganized culture of Philippi. The Jews, after all, had been the beneficiaries of centuries of divine instruction. The law of Moses, Paul explains in Galatians 3, 24-25, was an instructor and guardian designed to bring Israel up to the school of Christ where they could receive and appreciate the glorious message of justification by faith. So Acts 17, 2 continues, Then Paul, as his custom was, went in to them. That is, he attended the synagogue during its meetings, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Three Sabbaths would be three weeks, with the most significant work taking place on the Sabbath day when the whole community would gather for instruction and prayer. There are several reasons to believe that Paul's ministry in Thessalonica was longer than three weeks, and we will consider them in a moment, but this seems to have been the duration of his labor among the Jews. He spent this time explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. We have here an active display of the threefold method of inductive Bible study observation, interpretation, and application. Paul's preaching began with the Scripture. The Scripture provided all the material he would use to accomplish his task. Next, he explained what the Scriptures meant. Literally, the text says that he opened the Scriptures to his listeners. And finally, he demonstrated or gave proofs or, again, literally placed before them how the teachings of those Scriptures had been fulfilled and the demands that fulfillment placed on the audience and all the world, saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Luke's sermon summaries and acts do not always paint a very detailed picture of the apostolic method of preaching, and some have concluded that the apostles used the scriptures merely as proof texts for their personal conclusions about Jesus based on their experience with him. In fact, the apostles are frequently accused of abusing the scriptures, which is a common sin among those who simply use them as proof texts for topical lectures. But I would suggest that texts like this one show exegetical, expository preaching was the practice of the apostles and is a fundamental component to the practice of true Christianity. Exegetical preaching has many virtues— First, it roots the faith of the people of God in the Word of God. 
the congregations and the disciples will simply believe what God reveals, even if more or less imperfectly, if their instruction comes from the Scripture alone and as God gives it. Certainly, there will always be room for misapprehension, but abiding in this kind of study of the Scripture and presentation of it is a sure way to overcome misapprehension more and more with every return to the text. Whereas teaching that allows some external force to define doctrine and then uses the Bible to establish it can persist in undetected error perhaps indefinitely. Second, it ensures that no portion or part of God's revelation is neglected, either intentionally or unintentionally. One of the chief errors of the Jews in Jesus' day was their tendency to select only certain images of the Messiah through which to form their expectation of him. They chose the images that were most prominent and pervasive in the Scripture, but those were images of the victorious, conquesting, triumphant Christ ruling the nations, not the Christ who suffered and rose from the dead. And their image was thus insufficient, and what they neglected caused them to reject the Messiah and favor often impostors over him, as Jesus stated in John chapter 5, verse 43. Finally, Exegetical preaching is valuable because it accomplished the purpose God intended his word to accomplish. It educates, it encourages, it identifies, it transforms, and it persuades. Verse 4, And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. There is a contrast between some of the Jews who were persuaded and the great multitude of the devout Greeks, the point being that the returns from Paul's labor in the synagogue were small, not because of an inadequacy in the nature of the teaching, but because the seed requires good ground to produce fruit. It did not find it among the Jews, but it did among the devout Greeks, that is, the Gentiles who accepted what the Jews said about Yahweh, but had not proselytized to become a part of the Jewish community. Luke says that especially noteworthy was the number of leading women who came to Christ. Not a few is a lydites, meaning a large number. And while it is difficult to know if these women were called leading because they were the wives of city administrators and wealthy citizens, or if they were administrators and wealthy citizens themselves, the point Luke wants to make is that important people who had in the past favored the Jewish leaders now began to favor Paul and Silas, though in truth it was not the preachers, but the Christ they preached who these people favored because of their discernment of the truth that was spoken. Verse 5, But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious— well, this supports our conclusions about why Luke felt the need to report that the women who were converted were leading or prominent women. It's not that uh, that mattered to Christians, but it did matter to the community who felt it had lost them. These unbelieving Jews took some of the evil men from the marketplace. Now, that might seem like a strange statement to modern readers, but remember that in ancient Roman cities, the marketplace was not just a collection of shops to purchase food and other wares. It was the cultural center of the city, 
where ideas were shared and community was formed. In any marketplace, there would be quarters where the conversation and behavior was unsavory, and the people who gathered there were vulgar, unemployed, probably intoxicated or on their way to that condition, and eager for something to do that might give them some enjoyment or, better yet, earn them a quick coin. In fact, it's very likely that the unbelieving Jews hired these men, and gathering a mob, probably placing their troublemakers in key places throughout the crowd to stir up those who did not understand what was going on, they set all the city in an uproar. You can imagine the troublemakers running through the streets, shouting that men were causing trouble in the community and they needed to be stopped. You see, like Philippi, Thessalonica was a Roman colony, and its tenuous state would have been the sort of thing that people felt it was their civic duty to protect, and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. This is the first time we hear about Jason. Paul and Silas were lodging in this house, but Luke mentions him so matter-of-factly that we necessarily conclude he became famous among the Christians for the things he endured for the cause of Christ and was one of the best-known disciples in that area. Verse 6, But when they did not find them, either Paul and Silas were away from the house or well hidden, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. For their purposes of turning public sentiments against the Christian message, Paul and Silas would have been preferred targets, but the leading local brethren would do. There are two statements made about Paul and Silas and Christians in general that are worth noting here. First, they called the Christians these who have turned the world upside down. This is a colorful expression that simplistically means they had caused problems or upset every community into which they entered. Evidently, they had received some sort of report from the Jews in other cities about the things that had transpired there, possibly in Asia, though it is also possible that they heard about the incident in Philippi and were choosing to focus on the arrest and beating rather than the public apology from the magistrates. Yet the important point, which was very true, was that Christians made a significant impact on the population wherever they were. The Christian message was vigorously promoted, and when it was accepted and put into practice, there was a felt change in the climate of the city or village. In Philippi, we saw the example of the demon-possessed slave girl who was delivered, taking her out of commission as a popular fortune teller and causing a financial loss to her owners. Later, when the evangelists returned to Asia to work there, we will find that because of the conversions in the city of Ephesus, the industries based on the paganism of that region were feeling a loss of profit. This begs the question of whether or not our modern iterations of Christianity can be described in this same way. Certainly, the unbelieving world has not improved so much that real Christianity could go by unnoticed. Yet in communities where thousands of churches can be found, there is no discernible impact on the ungodly industries in the area. Liquor stores and bars, 
Nightclubs and strip clubs, marijuana dispensaries and illicit massage parlors do not shut down for lack of business. According to reports, pornography and mind-altering substances are used as much by professing Christians as by those who make no profession at all. This is a significant divergence from primitive Christianity. There have been seasons of revival when modern Christianity got closer to this biblical model. They've been short-lived, but they manifest that such a thing is possible even today. Thus, any effort to restore primitive Christianity must not be satisfied until it has recaptured the otherworldliness and zeal that upsets the world. Second, they said these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. I want to consider two points from this statement. First, it is vital to recognize that the kingship of Jesus was a fundamental part of the gospel preached by the apostles. Those who heard them did not conclude that Christians thought Jesus would be king only in some future age after he returned, but rather they confessed him as king then and now. This should not be surprising to us. We've already seen Peter cite Psalm 110 verse 1, the prediction of the enthronement of Messiah, as something that was fulfilled in his ascension, and the Christian hope was that Christ who rules now will continue to reign until he has conquered all, until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Second, this message was said to be contrary to the decrees of Caesar. What decrees did they have in mind? Some suggest that the reference was to decrees prohibiting an illegal assembly of a voluntary association, or perhaps decrees that prohibited prophesying about the death of an emperor. That such decrees existed, and even that Christians might well have been accused of violating them, is not disputed. But I think the more likely answer is that the Jews had in mind exactly what they mentioned. They were accusing Christians of treason. In imperial Rome, regional rulers, whether they were given the honorific of king or something else, derived their power and authority from the one true king of the earth, Caesar himself. In Roman imperial narrative, the emperor was the ruler over the kings of the earth who won the favor of the gods for his people and provided them with divine virtues of peace, social harmony, happiness, mercy, faith, health, and hope. These very expressions fill the surviving inscriptions of imperial propaganda from the time of the early church and many years before. Of course, even a cursory familiarity with the writings of the New Testament would alert one to the fact that Christians claimed all of these honors for Jesus, independent of Caesar, and in excess far above Caesar. Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Jesus is the one who brings the favor of God to man, and Jesus is the giver of all blessings and virtues. However, in a real sense, it was unfair to accuse Christianity of anti-imperialism because Jesus and his apostles taught Roman Christians, and by extension Christians in every nation, to be good, obedient, and respectful citizens inasmuch as supreme loyalty to Christ would permit. Matthew 21, 22, Romans 13, 1 through 5, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. 
which under most circumstances would be as good, as obedient, and as respectful as any reasonable dignitary could hope for. The Roman Empire was not the principal concern for Christianity because Christ knew that his kingdom would far outlast Rome. Rome and all other human nations, because they're rooted in rebellion against God, founded on carnal principles and devised by human wisdom, are destined to crumble in on themselves through their own decadence and folly. It always happens. Thus Christians could live as strangers and pilgrims under that system or under any other, as no real present threat to it, waiting for it to pass away and celebrating the wonderful fact that the kingdom of God will not pass away and could grow alongside it and within it. Yet these subtleties, legitimate as they are, would be missed by an arrogant king. And in some time, the Caesars themselves, at least a few of them, would come to agree with the unbelieving Jews' assessment of the Christian faith, and they would turn their ire against the believers. Those who upset the world would continue to do so, and must continue even to this day. The world will fight back, but the world will lose. Because there is another king, Jesus, and all are destined to bow before him. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians, of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, TulsaChurchOfChrist.com Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit VBVPodcast.com Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless and have a great week. From all the dark places of earth, heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.